Hello, you're listening to Film Grays. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here for our 29th episode, episode 028. Let's talk about cinema. Mm. Uh, some of the best films that we've watched recently, I think. It's been a pretty good start to the year in terms of uh, viewing. You've put me onto some crazy stuff. Yeah, I feel like I've actually sort of gone in this year, especially this February. There's been a lot of like multiple watches a day. Mm-hmm. I've watched loads of Zoltan Vabru films, and I'd love to do an episode on those imminently because pff, it's one of the maddest filmographies I've ever got involved with. Coming soon. Yeah. Another big episode coming soon, 1921. Um, we've both watched loads of films from 1921 by this point. I hope you're excited, listeners. It's going to be one of our most uh, sick episodes, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, for sure. One of our most um, uproarious, decadent, what other words are used to describe the, the 20s? Lost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a good one. But we have loads of great content to discuss today guys ah <laughs> sam just made a joke there about martin scorsese's essay about federico fellini that appeared in harper's yesterday and has set twitter alight once again the old man setting the record straight and telling us how to properly watch films i, I saw on reddit yesterday um i guess on the front page um some excel spreadsheet someone had made and then screenshotted of um the the marvel slate for this year and right. the the title was like am i crazy for thinking there's gonna be marvel content every week this year uh and it's like it looks i guess it looks like they're they're not wrong it's just a machine isn't it we didn't know how good we had it in 2020 without any marvel content <laughs> I did like this Scorsese piece, actually, you know, especially the first third of it where he's just talking about walking around like lower Manhattan and all the films in this like sort of fantasy Mm. dreamscape like you could have seen in the cinema, like Mm. all the Bergman and Fellini, I guess, that you could see in a cinema. And Mm. I guess he's, you know, he's concerned about all of these like classic, you know, European art movies just becoming like part of the Criterion channels, like art movie slate. Yeah. It felt a bit confused to me because on the one hand, he's saying like, oh, we're losing all of this to just like be at the mercy of streaming services. But then also that we need curators. And he talks a lot about like Amos Vogel and Jonas Mikas and Mm. these kinds of people who were like instrumental in getting these movies seen and distributed at the time. Mm. I imagine there are people who in a slightly more anonymous capacity perform exactly the same roles for movie and for Criterion. You know what I mean? As what being like content managers yeah like head of content <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah i i think confused is inappropriate and and nostalgic these are the words that came to mind when i was reading this tract um i guess his invocation of the form versus content or form and content sort of debate is is important and that is something that is central to to our product here to our product here our project here <laughs> yeah um yeah. please may i remind the listener that film grays is completely unmonetized and um you know yeah he says at this point we can't take anything for granted we can't depend on the movie business such as it is to take care of cinema in the movie business which is now the mass visual entertainment business the emphasis is always on the word business and value is always determined from the amount of money to be made from any given property reading those words 
that is a story as old as time and one that Scorsese himself has participated in. He's not exactly... Of course. Um, as, as much as a champion of world cinema he is, and, you know, really world cinema, you know, from, I guess, like, Poland to Senegal to... Cambodia, like... <sighs> You know. Yeah, the Film Foundation has done such amazing work over the last, like, 35 years or whatever mm. in trying to be the change they want to see in, like, film society, make it more diverse and representative on the world stage of filmmaking. And that is a noble cause. And they obviously produce some, or I guess, um, sponsor or involved in um, great restorations and reissues. But, yeah, sorry, I guess the point I'm making is, like, as much as I hate this shit or have reservations about it, you know, as in, like, that sort of media... Uh, I guess that's why I use the word nostalgic because it's it's a romantic conception of the history of film, which I think actually belies its realities in um, not un- unuseful ways, you know? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the whole essay is about Fellini, right? And he's built up both in cinema history and in this article to be like, you know, a real standalone like artist, someone who like came to represent like the world of art film having it on his shoulders but that's to me in direct opposition to having a sort of broader filmmaking sphere Mm. he was making content uh (laughs) yeah i also think that like the issue that he's talking about in terms of film distribution and like um something like you know disney buying up all the rights to all the old 20th century fox films and then Mm. presumably never leasing them out to be projected in a cinema Mm. that's more of a problem in america over here that's not likely to happen. So maybe you'll have like Americans flying over here just so they can go see the Tobacco Road in the cinema <laughs> one day. Yeah. That's my vision for post-Brexit Britain. Is, you know, rights, <laughs> rights-free <laughs> cinema exhibition. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not the biggest Fellini fan either, so I guess that bent to the essay mm. Mm. was really unconvincing for me. But maybe if he'd done it about Godard or Bresson, I would have been more okay with it. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps. I don't know. It's an interesting piece, though. Dude is a bit of a hypocrite, though, because he's not exactly standing in opposition to these things. He's like, I'm one of the biggest filmmakers in the world, and even I have to, like, go to Netflix with my hat in my hand if I want to make The Irishman or the Dylan film or mm. this Fran Lebowitz docu-series or whatever. It's like, a, Yeah, it is I, a bit of a having your cake and eating it sort of situation, I think. 100%. Also, The Joker is a good film. I know I say this all the time, but, you know. Scorsese's best work. Um, <laughs> oh my god! I, we tried to watch a bit of old school the other day in search of like a just a very banal sort of funny American comedy. Um, what, the Todd, You're my boy, Blue film. Todd Phillips. Oh yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's Todd Phillips. <laughs> old school, and it was just unwatchable. We gave up after about fifteen mm. minutes. But yeah, as I said, loads of great content to cover today. Um, I think we'll start by talking about Dushan Hanak's pictures of the old world the finest content that uh ok.ru our streaming platform of choice has to offer <laughs> sure they're curators the people who run those channels they're serious cineasts you know? yeah there's there's this one person has made a channel of eastern european films um asian films and i guess like a more miscellaneous channel and like every film on there i look at the tile and title and i'm like Oh my god, like, <laughs> the Eastern European one has been a real haven, actually, um, over the last few months. This is kind of how I felt when I first looked at, like, the front page of Criterion Collection, though, anyway, or whatever. Mm. Or, like, when Movie opened their library, or, like, BFI Player, or these sort of second-tier, slightly more outre film streaming mm. services. They do have a lot to offer, you know. Well, sure. That's also just part of the sort of modern um, 
sort of media consumer landscape. Like, we have to think about things in these terms because, like, I guess that's what's interesting about OK.RU, though, is that it's, like, literally like Facebook or something. And they just, like, don't enforce this shit. I've got a friend who, like, they, like, deleted all their old music, but some of it is still on, like, the only place you can get it is on VK.RU, which is, like, the other... Maybe that's older. Mm. But that's also, like, a social network where people just, you know, trade files rights-free and stuff like Mm. that, you know. Mm. I think I first heard about it uh, on Jonathan Rosenbaum's recommendation in an interview mm. with Will Sloan, I guess, on the Important Cinema Club, or was it mm-hmm. Mike? Was it that or Michael? It was on. It was on Michael and us movies as politics. Yeah, that was great. Also, when we did our John Ford episode, some of those films we simply couldn't find anywhere else, and they were on there. Films like Pilgrimage, The Rising of the Moon, both films that are really lost to the sands of time. And that are just not part of the conversation when people think about the work of John Ford. You can watch them on his website, so please seek them out. Pictures of the Old World is also available from Second Run DVD. Yes, I'm going to have to cop it, along with a couple of Dushan Harak's short films, which seem to be unavailable outside of that physical copy. I said it before, I'll say it again, long live, okay, dot, are you? <laughs> that, like, bing, bing, bang, bong, sing, sang, song, okay, are you, hon? Man, that's so stupid. <laughs> what? No, okay, don't don't worry about it. Okay, are you? Hun- it's, it's a. Re- <laughs> In the uh, extended content landscape of the film Grey's universe. We have recently acquired an Instagram account. Mm. Dear listener, please follow us at film.grays. Uh, we've been posting like screenshots from stuff. One film that I hadn't even heard about until you posted an amazing screen sh- series of screenshots from <laughs> was this film, Pictures of the Old World, which we've had a lot of people being like, what is this film? Like, how can I watch it? It looks incredible. Just from this like series of this like haggard, old, you know, rural Slovakian man talking about Werner von Braun. I guess we had like a sort of gravity's rainbow adjacent caption. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I went for. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen uh, Thomas Harris has written like a non-wavy gravity's rainbow about? It's called V two, and it's like about. Oh, I saw the poster. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, at, at White City or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Got to read it. Do me a favor. <laughs> but Sam, how did you come across Pictures of the Old World? One of the best films I've ever seen. Well, I probably came across it at a sort of intersection between browsing the second run catalogue mm-hmm. as i said i've really just been trying to like clean myself up on um eastern european film history over like this, this year you sure have and finding a copy on this uh okay channel it's an astonishing film and like nothing i've ever seen before i guess jonas mikas was um and stuff like Soy Cuba. Mm-hmm. These are the sort of things that come to mind when you watch it. Just to very briefly synopsize, it's only just just about an hour over an hour long from 1972. It's a tight 68 minutes. Yeah. You hear that, listeners? We're not doing <laughs> we're not telling you to watch Satan Tango this week, although we kind of are. <laughs> yeah, oh my god, ain't it true? I feel like every letterbox review I write at the moment, by the way, is like Satan Tango meets <laughs> <laughs> like stagecoach or yeah. bridesmaids or you know <laughs> We're like... getting back to we're getting back to high high concept elevator pitched film culture man. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Pictures of the Old World, it's inspired by a set of photographs by the Slovakian photographer Martin Martinček, which depict rural Slovakians, typically older people, mm. I guess, uh, in, because the sort of black and white film stock just picks up the grooves in their foreheads and the gaps in their teeth so romantically. It's a huge part of this film. It's, you know, yeah. I know you jest, but... I'm constantly staring at that shit on both watches. Sometimes I'd <laughs> yeah. be like, whoa. Like. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're astonishing faces and they provide the, the lifeblood of this. It basically intersperses uh, these Martin Czech photographs, which are definitely worth Googling, but you'll see a lot of them if you watch the film, mm-hmm. with interviews and sort of recreations of the photos with their subjects. So Hanak and the the team that produced this, they went around villages all over Slovakia. It says at the beginning, it credits the the main subjects that they sort of interview or treat in this film. And it says where they're from, and you can see that they're Mm -hmm. spread out across Slovakia. No one's from Bratislava, though, which is an important point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really about the periphery. Mm -hmm. It's a film which examines um, just people that exist outside of the sort of main sort of political and economic frameworks of the early 70s when it was made. It was banned almost immediately by the Czechoslovakian authorities uh, just for a brief bit of historical context then in 1968 along with many other nations there were sort of protests and um, an, an attempted revolution it's called the Prague Spring honestly I'm not an expert so I'm literally just going to reel off a couple of dates here in like very broad strokes they were um, attempting to create a world <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. one thing they didn't <laughs> foresee <laughs> Uh, so in no, yeah in 1968 um it had been um Czechoslovakia was obviously a composite 20th century state made up of chunks of land from different countries and Czechia, the Czech Republic and um Slovakia mm-hmm. 1968 the Prague Spring they attempted a sort of counter revolution i guess towards like sort of more like sort of social democratic political system it was basically crushed by uh, a coalition of soviet and um, other eastern european states so when this film was made it was in like a reactionary totalitarian political landscape which is interesting because looking at a lot of these you know talking like daisies or like the fireman's ball or mm. a film i'll talk about in a bit marketa lazarova or a lot of these like mm. big Czech new wave films that are like incredibly subversive and were made like a few years before this. It's mad to think that those films were like widely distributed and not banned. Whereas this like kind of minor, I think it was banned for being too naturalistic. It was a quote I read somewhere Mm. Mm. or being too real. (laughs) Yeah, it is very real. I guess that's one of the things about Czech new wave is that it has these like often has these fantasy or Mm. like sort of surrealist elements. Something like Yuri Menzel's work I guess doesn't have that. So I guess it's, I don't know whether Closely Watched Trains was banned when it came out. Oh, actually, though, that would. Oh, sorry, I've completely fucked up my chronology. So basically, all those crazy, like, essential Czech New Wave films yeah. came out, like, before, in, like, a small period of time in the 60s, yeah. before, like, the sort of political repression. The backlash. Had, like, failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the like, age of Metternich sort of, mm. Um, mm. like, conservative 
backlash, reactionary backlash. But um, Hanak studied at the the Prague Film School, um, FAMU, I don't know. Is the, yeah. is the acronym. So Yuri Mangel, who made Closely Watch Chains, Vera Chitilova, um, Agnieszka Holland. I watched her film Europa Europa recently, and that's definitely worth seeking out. She also directed a lot of episodes of The Wire, if I'm not mistaken. Is that so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> that's cool. But yeah, it's like a huge like institution. Friend of the show, Ollie, I believe, went to study there. It's still an important institution. But the political climate was was different when, when Hannah made this film. Mm. Um, Jan Schwankmeyer is involved in the production. I guess we'll get to that. Uh, that's enough historical context. Let's talk well, about it. Well, I was going to say one more thing because we, we <laughs> yeah. did... Um, well, you watched. I haven't caught it yet. But, you know, Slovakia entered the global filmmaking community before Czechia. Mm. One of the films from 1921, you can remind me of the title. Janosik. That was the first feature film made in Slovakia, and it made Slovakia the 10th country in the world to produce a feature film. Mm. But this film, I guess, is, even though it was made like when they were united, like is very much considered a Slovak film, uh, like mm. in opposition to Czech cinema as we would understand it to be now. I think mm. because of the sort of rural qualities of this film and also just the mad differences in filmmaking approach. There were a few shots that reminded me of Marketa Lazarova, but otherwise you got to look way more east big time, or way more into the future for filmmaking analogues for this kind of thing, I think. Yeah, you've alluded to its interesting form and I also said that it intercuts photographs with like sort of recreations and interviews and the product of that synthesis is just honestly astonishing as a sort of image of you know what it says on the tin pictures of the old world the use of music i think i just need to foreground like straight away is staggering i think and really moving unaccompanied slovakian folk songs people playing bagpipes and other traditional i guess like huge like mad the giant flute giant flute yeah that that oil that the dude put in the flute did absolutely nothing for the sound (laughs) he's like i need to oil it and then it sounds even more rusty after he puts the oil in my man gets some linseed oil out of a little cabinet and then literally pours it down the like (laughs) mouth hole and i was like shaking i was like oh no oh no 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 (laughs) (laughs) there's also this this bit of music that plays over the opening credits that sounds like tortoise or something like that i don't know how to describe it it sounds like almost like a submarine sort yeah. of sound effect or something like yeah. that but it's implacable i just I, I didn't know it is music though as opposed to being uh foley or whatever it has like a re it immediately takes you somewhere like yeah unexpected you know? and this film has like about 10 minutes this film is about like the moon landing and like the Soviet space program and stuff like that, you know. So it's not mm. to put these kind of like elements against a film which is about like being a farmer, like in t- a totally non-urban historical pastoral setting. Mm. Uh, pastoral is a hard word to use, I think, because it's very punishing and yeah, has a sort of uh, bucolic connotation, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, like, sort of prancing through the wheat fields. <laughs> those were the days yeah <laughs> yeah that space um sequence yeah is the one that i screen cap where this guy is taught um basically literacy plays a super interesting function in here mm. and um the way like these people 
uh, by their own admission, like sort of undereducated and just like have a completely mod, you know, they, they exist outside of the sort of modern frameworks of information exchange and pedagogy that, you know, pretty much every like modern subject benefits from whether they accept it or not. Uh, these people have a completely different existence. When they're presented, there are a few scenes where a microphone is on screen mm-hmm. and um, they're asked, um, they're just asked a, qu- a couple of questions. Um, what do you um, like? What's important in your life, or like where does value come from in your life? You know, it's a philosophical question that gets like so many responses. Mm. But the way they interface with the microphone, so is the is the actual thing that I wanted to point out. And like these people that like don't experience technology, they've never seen a microphone before. Like, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And literacy is important as well because like mm. that seems like such a basic prerequisite for like if you study like medieval history, like sure. like literacy changes the game sure. for uh you know for the peasantry in terms of like contesting their situation sure and these people like that guy is like um he's fascinated by astronomy so that's like our inroads to that like astronomical sequence where he's like talking about like the american space program but like it seems so far from like their existence but it reminds me of my my grandma you know she would like have all these like little bridge clippings in like this you know little book and she just take them out and read them and this guy has his jackets like full of newspaper clippings about the space program and stuff like that yeah and he you get the sense that he loves like telling this story to the camera and like flexing all his knowledge about the space program and stuff like that and he would have been you know how old would he have been for the first like gagarin mission he still would have been like in his 40s or 50s or whatever yeah 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 you know what i mean that's his like favorite shit is not only to be able to tell the stories but to like to give you material sources even if it's in pravda or whatever <laughs> yeah the guy's an encyclopedia you know and it mm. just um it's just alludes to a whole other sort of epistemological framework and we're going to talk about um paul greengrass's new film news of the world later mm. and like he's like the main character in that but um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the media will save us from you know fascism <laughs> This film, though, man, it's just mad. I guess the way they... These people obviously have already been photographed by Martinchek, and that those Mm -hmm. are the sort of reference, the jumping-off point for this film. But these are the people that can take their narrative into their own hands, right? And some of them take that opportunity in a mad way and open up in a mad way about all Mm. sorts of things. And some of them are almost stultified by the technology or Mm. even the opportunity to express themselves seems Mm. something dazzling and insurmountable. And it's just, oh, it's actually heartbreaking. Yeah, that's a really important point where you just said, I think. Well, it's just that question of like freedom as well. Mm. There's one scene where just the way they interact with the camera and like the act of being filmed and like that opportunity to record is like so important. One of the first scenes, this guy is like, oh, like make me seem funny. People like it when people are funny. And like, it's just so touching because it's like about control and like they see it as an opportunity almost because like they can't do it themselves. It has that Nathan for you quality that we love to see in yeah yeah of course of course and nathan for you can be so touching yeah exactly yeah and like really get to the heart of the matter and there's this one scene where he goes to a church and there's an old woman and she's like oh you should have come sooner when my teeth were like bulbs of garlic 
And like she's just they're obviously all their teeth are just fucked in this village. Yeah, that's what on Letterbox that's that everyone makes a joke about how few teeth there are in the film yeah. or whatever. But it's no joke, man. No, yeah, 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 of course. But I just thought that was so touching because you just think of like I don't know. That's yeah. It's Sam Story speechless, rendered speechless once again. Yeah, both times I watched this film, I was just extremely affected by it. The bit that made me cry the most was, you know, the sequence you alluded to earlier, which is like, you know, probably the most edited part of the film where they're going to like a lot of different people and he he's asking like that question of like what is valuable or whatever or like what is it's not what it's the meaning of life but it's something like that and the last woman in that is like an old woman she says oh no one ever taught me that mm, yeah that killed me <laughs> yeah some of them are like how should i know like yeah I, it's not for me to think about these things other people were like oh let me think about it oh dancing is what's most valuable there's right. one old woman they say what is value in life to you and she goes small dog sadness yeah and she goes that is all i've ever known and it's yeah. like fucking hell but there's also <laughs> some the man the man who's on his knees who's been crawling for 25 years or whatever who's like that's disabled. insane so yeah there's this guy that he said his legs got crushed by a wagon wheel so yeah. he just crawls everywhere it's but he mad. says joy is the most important thing to him or like life is full of joy or whatever you know hmm. am i correct there's like a five minute discussion of joy in this film. And I think it was. Oh, I think what you're thinking of is um, one guy's like joyousness and then it tracks down and he's got like a hook hand. Uh, like yeah, that's hook. that's right. Sorry. Yeah, that's and that's absolutely like, correct. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, like... <laughs> uh, that is quite manipulative filmmaking. And it is quite manipulative filmmaking because, sure. as you said, it's like that Soviet shit where it's like just very powerful editing. But yeah. the subjects, you know, it's inherently powerful anyway because. It's a collaborative process or whatever. So how would you compare this to another filmmaking project that we encountered recently, which was Christoph Kislovsky's Talking Heads, made about eight years afterwards. It's a short film. Mm. It's available on YouTube. Mm. It's a bit more like formally deliberate, where it's in one village or it's in one place in Poland. And he, like Dubliners, the subjects get older and older progressively. So he starts out interviewing like a one-year-old boy. And by the end... (laughs) By the end, he's interviewing like a hundred year old woman, um, asking them like, who are you? How old are you? And what's important to you? That film is fucking incredible to me. Um, I also recommend everyone check it out because you see just, you know, the differences of ideology and generations and how like, you know, Mm -hmm. they have a different relationship with the state and with work and with individualism and with spirituality. Yeah. And I guess they are supposed to be sort of like epigrammatic for their whole generation, but I couldn't think of a film that conveys more about how different people are yeah. and how people are shaped by, you know, the psychology of their age than Adam Curtis's Can't Get No, than uh, <laughs> Christoph Kislovsky's Talking Heads. That is a remarkable film. And the, I guess the main difference is, as you said, the milieu. Mm. Pictures of the old world is all about um, these rural communities and the individuals within them. Whereas, as you said, uh, Kislovsky's Talking Heads is urban and Polish. Just a completely different thing. But they are unified by that sort of like philosophical, anthropological quality. And they're both remarkable documents. Um, and if you want a, an insane double bill after this, I would recommend going and watching both of these films. Definitely. 
but they're both responding to communism or the specter of communism, right? Big time. You know, um, the, in the Kozlovsky, like, the question of individualism, it seems to, like, appear and disappear as you go through the ages or whatever. Maybe mm. this is just because I watched the Adam Curtis shit recently. Mm. No, it's true. It is. That is true. That is true. And, like, agency. What does yeah. a baby want? What does a hundred-year-old woman want? Yeah. I guess not all of them want to live forever. But in this instance, she says the one thing she says she wants is to keep you know more life yeah and the and the five-year-old wants a nice house (laughs) yeah and if you're a 30 year old you know sort of aspirational citizen Mm. you have just sort of different economic imperatives they are obviously all colored by the sort of political and historical context though yeah both of these films are like unbelievably quotable though and like i wish i had the subtitles to hand or whatever there's one bit in the kislovsky where someone says oh like there's a competition for a monument to if you've seen man of marble oh, i need to watch it yeah you, do, you really really do Fider. by Fida, who scorsese talks about along with bergman and fellini and all these people yeah. it's like one of the yeah. essential That's but right. um yeah they're talking about how there's like a competition for a commission for like a monument to one of these like great workers or whatever and he's like oh you know like people should really take care of each other but i really hope i win this fucking competition that would be the best (laughs) yeah that would be the best thing ever i would be such a great man if my design was used for this like public piece even though like you know it's funny when you put it like that it sounds so different when you're watching it because he's like (laughs) such a like humble like 60 year i I guess i should have paid more attention but like i guess like a 60 year old that's like it's not it doesn't seem like a sort of egocentric thing no no sort of fact of life where like you want the shit that you do to be good yeah or like celebrated they're really comparable films so the other one i would draw for comparison that i watched in 2021 was a pitch pong we're ethical's first film mysterious object of noon which is a bit more fanciful he's basically going around thailand going to like kitchens and interviewing people in their place of work in like it very like naturalistic black and white 16 millimeter film but he's getting them instead of to talk about themselves he's trying to get them to tell like the maddest story they know and then he puts it together in this sort of like exquisite corpse style where they've like taken all these people's imaginations and sort of put them together to tell like i mean it's pretty loose narrative isn't really the the operative word here but it's very Mm. it feels very similar even though actually what our friend joe is trying to do is a lot more sort of fantastical, even though it's also mm. about living under a regime. Mm. I guess both are just predicated on the photographic subject having agency. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, that's where the, the content lies, even <laughs> if the form is dictated by the fantastic auteurism of uh, Dushan Hanak. Um, I'd love to check out more of his other films, but it's yet to happen. I think we need people to learn Slovakian so they can translate them. So, Sam, if you want to do that for <laughs> for our dear listeners, be my guest. We're pretty bad for spoilers on this show, I feel, but you can't spoil pictures of the old world. I think everyone should fucking watch it. Like, <laughs> I couldn't think of a better way to spend an hour or a more informative way to spend an hour, mm. as well as, you know, just the blend of like documentary filmmaking with like stills photography is, you know, something you don't really see ever. I guess like Chris Marker, like Le Jeté was probably the mm. thing that it reminded me of the most in terms of how much stills are used to animate the story. Forgive the mixed metaphor. I would also compare it to Satan Tangle because it's like, you know, new type of guy, old type of guy. They're like, you know, mm. these people can 
feel quite archetypal you know there's like the bespectacled guy there's like the disillusioned old woman there's like the old woman who loves her family there's like the disabled guy mm. and you get the impression that these people live in communities of like 30 maximum or something like that you know yeah that's the thing because the film is spread out across all these different villages mm. one thing it doesn't convey is the sort of uniqueness of specific communal experiences right it stresses the sort of universality yeah. of the framework within which these sort of individual subjects then express themselves mm. slash exist slash resist death mm. every day <laughs> um, Oh my god, uh, I just thought it was amazing. Yeah, definitely. We didn't even say that like so much of the soundtrack, I think it's Handel? Yeah, it's Handel, yeah. On an organ. Yeah, and it's just, the juxtaposition is mad. And it just emphasises the potency of the folk songs when they when they come up. Definitely. And, um, you know, the, the bagpipes and the big flute, the name of which I can't remember. But Oh, that bagpipe is insane. Yeah, uh, well, I feel like we haven't even like taken time to sort of excavate the like specific personalities that populate this film, and there are so many rich characterizations. But I just encourage the listeners to check this film out for themselves because it's an, just an unforgettable experience. I'm glad we were able to discuss it on the pod because I I think it's an underseen film that deserves attention. Ripe for revisiting. Sam, thanks so much for showing it to me. I really, it's the best film I've seen this year, yeah. without a doubt. And I've been recommending it to fucking everyone. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, shout out to um, Second Run for printing it. Every time. And I think their restoration does look amazing, actually. Because I think restoring these kind of films must be quite a task. Especially when you have, like, a printed hard copy of, like, how good the photography can look. Mm. And then you're handling like a banned film that's been in a vault for 40 years or whatever. Mm. Mm. I wonder when it was unbanned. Do you think it can be screened in Slovakia now? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I imagine it was probably sometime in the 90s. But again, yeah. I don't know. They've surreptitiously unbanned Crash. You can screen that. They were going to screen that at the Prince Charles and that had been banned in Westminster for like 25 years. But... Is that the one about people fucking in cars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Ballard adaptation. Banned in Westminster. Yeah, banned in the city of Westminster. <laughs> but... Oh my God. So I could have screened it in Greenford or something. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Well, stay tuned, dear listener. <laughs> Maybe so... we'll break the law and um, project it against... Um... We'll watch it at Francis's yeah. house or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I said something very, very similar on the last episode about Kelly Reichardt. Check it out, listeners, if you haven't listened. It's a really good one. But Pictures of the New World, it was another film that I watched like quite soon after watching Nomadland by Chloe Zhao, uh, destined for Oscar success and audience success. I still ain't seen it. Yeah, I mean, you may have to watch it, but I'm just getting all my review content out. But that film, you know, also casts a lot of real people like to give the impression of real living history but then also has two like very famous actors to like guide you through this uh landscape or whatever but it's so much worse than pictures of the old world you know for for having that i think mm. for imposing sort of hollywood narrative form on the content of like what is she's telling you she's trying to do mm. but these people you know not to say that any of the people in nomadland are like being deceptive or whatever in portraying themselves. But I don't think it doesn't lead you to ask as interesting questions mm. as this film does. 
I mean, if you'd cast like a super famous Czech actor to or Slovakian um, screen presence to like perform, you got the, the role. cremator like walking around. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it literally would just completely negate the function of the film. Well, then it would be Nathan for you, wouldn't it? Yeah, or Borat. <laughs> Just on the topic of Kelly Reichardt then, before she made First Cow, she wanted to make this film set in a Slovakian village in the 19th century. Are you serious? Yeah, I really hope she does go on to make that film. And I imagine, I don't know whether she's seen Pictures of the Old World, I imagine she probably has as part of like, you know, it's essential viewing, basically. She teaches film, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. If I was teaching film, I'd make people watch this shit, you know. I think it's part of the story of film, man, um, in a major way. But the film we're going to talk about now, much like First Cow, is a Western. I wouldn't describe it as a revisionist Western necessarily. In Hell fact, no. I'd describe it as um, <laughs> extremely traditional. But Paul Greengrass's News of the World, adapted from um, Paulette Giles's, um novel of the same name, inspired by narratives of abduction of sort of settler children, by um, Native Americans and how uh, those people sort of fit within the sort of cultural framework of American history. It's a Netflix property. Hail Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, some of the best content we've had this week. We're eating. We got Malcolm (laughs) and Marie and News of the World in one week. Can you believe it? Uh, How do you feel about Paul Greengrass? I guess for most people, he's most famous as the director of the the Bourne films. But Mm. he he has a really interesting filmography, including lots of TV films as well, doesn't he? I rate him a lot, actually. It's obvious that, like, the Bourne supremacy and the Bourne ultimatum, like change the look of Hollywood action cinema like goes without saying if you watch like Casino Royale it's clear like ripping off like Paul Greengrass's techniques or whatever that's not the most interesting thing about this dude's film but like that sort of handheld shaky cam action sequence thing it does turn up in this film but I think you know that's the stylistic hallmark isn't it in yeah. the popular imagination and like those fights in the Bourne the the first Bourne film, you know, like the byro where he jabs the byro in someone's hand. Right. Like that shit yeah. stuck with me. And like it's an interesting I guess like a verite. If we're talking Bourne, like I guess the bit in uh Marrakesh, I think it is in the second one is really cool. But also, you know, watching this Adam Curtis shit, those films really respond to the Patriot Act, man. I remember getting the Bourne Supremacy on DVD and it had this little insert that's like, here's all the words that if you include them in an email you're going to get put on a list and like 13 year old me just like emailed like Albert or whatever, just like all those (laughs) words and be like, oh, look at me, like I'm a terrorist or whatever. But like his filmmaking project is very, as we'll see with this film as well, it's very responsive to the times. You know, this dude made two films about the troubles, Green Zone, a film I really appreciate, could only have been made by an English filmmaker. That's like kind of a forgotten film now. It's definitely the best Iraq war film. It's got Matt Damon in it. And it's about like, a soldier discovering that they're all being manipulated by the CIA and there's no weapons of mass destruction, you know, like, and discovering that, that's the narrative bent of the mm. film. I mean, that is, like, counter-narrative. 
in yeah. like an essential way. I, I guess maybe because he worked in TV film as well. He made a film about match fixing in football in the 60s, in the, in the late 90s called The Fix. Um, I think it has Jason Isaacs and Steve Coogan. I'm sort of down. Yeah, I'd like he to made a film in, in 1999, a TV film again called The Murder of Stephen Lawrence with Marion mm-hmm. Jean-Baptiste. And I, yesterday I watched his Bloody Sunday film from 2002. I haven't seen the Omar. I saw that when it was on. I remember watching that quite vividly, actually. Yeah, was wh- what was your impression of that? I mean, I can't put the words in the mouth yeah. of my 10-year-old self or whatever, but <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it's realistic, you know? He handles action and, like, a lot of these films are about terror and a lot of these films are about, like, things happening in the public sphere and I think he found a way to convey them that hadn't been done before. United 93, which is a film that no one really wants to talk about anymore, but I remember when it came out in 2006, everyone went fucking crazy about it for, you know, having this, like, Watkins style like non-actors or like um the best film of the last decade the 1517 to Paris you know casting yeah. the actual air traffic controllers and people like that reliving the trauma of what happened on 9-11 like about that film is like kind of frowned upon now and like but it was sensational when it came out I remember it really distinctly and I remember being really down and pissed off that I couldn't go see it in the cinema he does the same thing in relation to like casting and that as a way of sort of excavating the memory of these events that he's exploring mm. in Bloody Sunday, where the guy um, whose memoir it's based on plays um, a priest. Uh, mm. And uh, there's a famous photograph from uh, Bloody Sunday, which was a march in, was it 72? The same year as Pictures of the Old World, in which protesters in Derry, against um internment of like basically arbitrary and inter- uh, arbitrary imprisonment detention without trial um, yeah. yeah yeah marched uh the march was prohibited by like a sort of a new like bylaw or whatever they went ahead and then there was military aggression i thought it was an amazing film actually um it's my pick for film club today and i sort of wish i'd picked that because it really blew me away but yeah the point is he casts the the guy that whose memoir it's based on as like a priest who like holds up a sort of bloody white handkerchief as like a sort of Mm. as like a sort of medic during the the firing to like extract um the uh someone that's been shot that wow subsequently went on to die but the guy was like a kid when or or like i guess a teenager when this happened and he's like a sort of middle-aged man when they made the film well i guess it's like the, the cameos in like um Alex Wheatle and like even like having like Dennis Bovell in Love really Rock. reminded me of Small Axe actually yeah sure um, sure in a bit in a big big way um and Z the Costa Gavras film that we discussed on an early episode which oh, is we're so calling it parody- Z now are we? uh, <laughs> Z oh my god did I fuck um, <laughs> yeah I guess just in terms of it being about a march and political repression yeah. and. Um, using a demonstration as sort of way of exploring all these political dynamics. Anyway, so tangential, I guess the point is that Paul Greengrass makes sort of interesting films, which I didn't really think before I watched News of the World, which actually doesn't really fit within that framework. It's different, but I guess we'll see the ways that it's similar as well. I think, Yeah, I think it's an interesting one for me because like similar with Adam Curtis, where it's like I look back on myself as like a teenager And I'm like, am I still down? Have I grown out of this? With Paul Greengrass, I can't really help but link him to uh, 
listening to Kermode Mayo when I was a teenager and then being like, this guy is the real deal. Like me as a 27 year old, am I like going to be like, nah, he sucks just because I liked him as a teenager? Well, the answer is no. I actually really rate his films. And if I was to watch Captain Phillips tomorrow, I'd probably think it was sick just like I did. I mean, that's probably one of the more uh, sus ones. I haven't seen it, but I think it still fits within the framework that we just laid out. And I really want to see the, the Oslo film as well. The film about Anders Breivik, like, that was his last film that came out. It's, that's on Netflix as well. He made that for Netflix. That's Netflix content. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, you know, it looks like a serious bit of filmmaking, as well as being unorthodox or the kind of films that, like, they don't traditionally let people make. I think the Peter Watkins comparison is valid. Um, it's very valid. It's like, it reminds me of that a lot, I think. And, the yeah, the Clint Eastwood, Peter Watkins, Paul Greengrass, like, triangle. Like, it's, <laughs> it's real, it's real. And Chloe Zhao is, like... 10 miles away being like hey guys give me, um <laughs> but the other really important bit of netflix content to like prefigure this film is a few years ago paul greengrass was a part of the five came back project oh yeah mark That's harris brilliant um, documentary sorry i loved it yeah mark harris uh he's a bit of a loser i think i don't like him um he's one of these like arch resistance people and he hates like bernie sanders etc but he did write this book at, that was subsequently made into a Netflix miniseries about all this shit we love. Ford, Wyler, Frank Capra, John Huston, and George Stevens and their work for the US government in the war effort as filmmakers. Paul Greengrass, he said he watched every single John Ford film, something which we only managed to do about a third of in preparation for that. He was the like talking head who was there to talk about John Ford. I'm going to need to rewatch that, man. Yeah, it's interesting how he subsequently made this film, which is extremely steeped in like many different sides of John Ford's filmography. This is Ford Fiesta part three and a half, I guess, for us right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like we're going to talk about a lot of Ford films Running the whole gamut from, you know, the Will Rogers, like Steamboat Round the Bend to Cheyenne Autumn, including The Searchers and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. They all play a role in this. There's a quote in his interview with the... Charles Romesco from Little White Lies, where he said he wanted to make the searches in reverse, which is like a very straightforward way to look at this film, but informative, I think. That is exactly what it does. Yeah. Um, go and do sorry, do the little synopsis rundown before yeah, we get okay, into cool. it. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a Tom Hanks movie as well. Like for you know, every year there's always an awards film that's kind of like shithead and normal and last year it was the two popes and that was my favorite film by far and i don't think i'm gonna see anything that i like more than news of the world this uh very staid uh middle-aged tom hanks dad film <laughs> he is will rogers man i guess we'll get more into that but that was definitely the one that jumped out to me like the mm. sort of conciliatory like but like i wish they'd gone the full like i wish he was an ex-confederate you know i wish they'd gone full the he, general he but they didn't no wasn't he meant yeah to be... man that's the whole thing he fought for texas they like every character in this film apart from those yankees you meet at the beginning all fought for you know and they would go on to fight like zapata like 15 years later or whatever in the like this film takes place in 1870, just after the Civil War. Wow, it's Classic. even it's even more Judge Priest than I thought. Sure, For some reason, sure. when I was watching it, I thought he was meant to be like a Northern veteran. No, man. And that was meant to be, and then he'd like moved. Yeah, well, fair enough. I like totally, that was like one of my main criticisms. <laughs> I was like, why didn't they like... Uh... <laughs> 
but you know like like they said about the general and like you know americans love films about the south and the confederacy because it's the ultimate underdog story i don't know who i'm quoting by saying that but i feel like everyone fucking says it all the time um he's a character who left his wife behind in san antonio to go and fight for the south after losing the civil war he became a newsreader um and using his literacy to go around all these like extremely disenfranchised southern communities reading the news um the first scene is him like i guess this came out in the edit or like kind of marks it out as like a covid movie or whatever where the first scene you see him like walk into a town and tell people about the meningitis epidemic has claimed 72 people mm. like in the town next to you right now or whatever. And they're like, a whole 72? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's other things that like make this a very, very 2020 slash 2021 film, but we'll get to that. He's a newsreader, so he goes around and then on his travels one day, he encounters a uh, very Aryan little girl lost, but she only speaks Kiowa. Yeah, Kiowa. Wow. In 2007, there were 20 native speakers of this language. But yeah, a lot of the film is her speaking in Kiowa. So that reminds me of um, Meek's Cut-Off, where the language they speak in that, again, I can't remember what it is, and I'm not going to pause it again to find out. Um, sure. They uh, that It's basically a dead language. She's a really interesting character. She's played by Helena Zengel, who was in the film System Crasher that came out last year and looks... Gotta check it out. Looks really sick. And she is, you know, a young girl whose, like, family were attacked by the Kiowa people and she was kidnapped. You find out that she can also speak German about halfway through the film. She's been raised as a Native American. Like, she only speaks that language, but she's been lost as the Yankees are going around, like, on a whole nother level of, like, marauding. You know, this is... 1870 was the year when they first started drawing up, like, Indian reservations and stuff like Mm. that. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It is really interesting. I I said it's not a revisionist Western, but... Maybe not the way it actually treats Native Americans as like sort of physical entity or cultural sort of present, like physical presence. Um, That was all a bit mystical. That was the worst. That was the worst scene in the film for me when they walk out of like the dust cloud and give them a horse. Yeah, but but the way that yeah, I I I don't know. It sort of works within the context of the film, but yeah, yeah, I think mystical is the is the term definitely um, rather than realist. But yeah, there's a line that's like, oh, uh, they're about to build the first road through um the mm. indian reservation and um there's like a close-up of like sort of consternation on on um, old will rogers i mean, sorry i mean uh tom hanks's face um <laughs> it i that that was interesting to me but i mean it i don't know it's not exactly like yeah it's not exactly radical Dude, it's a normal ass western film which i really appreciated about it to be honest like i appreciated it not being Bone Tomahawk or The Sisters Brothers, two like the other sort of like in the last decade, like biggest Westerns film, I guess like The Hateful Eight or whatever also factors in. But this film, like, you know, when Leone made Once Upon a Time in the West, he was like engaging with exactly the same tropes. And that was 55 years ago or whatever. The form had been so standardized. And I agree that there isn't like there's barely any revisionism. It's more just being a normal like historical film made about the times that we live in today. Because the people talk differently than they would do in like a Ford film. Like even the Man films or the Bud Bettica films or the Delma Daves films are way more like revisionist than the Ford films. But I think Greengrass, by playing it so straightforwardly and by having someone like Tom Hanks, I would say he reminded me more of uh, Henry Fonda than Will Rogers or like Henry Fonda in like Mr. Lincoln mode. That was probably the biggest parallel. 
I think that's part of the same ideological project, though. Sure. I guess there's something about Will Rogers where it's just like a slightly more nuanced than the sort of like complete like sort of sanctimoniousness of early Fonda work. Um, <laughs> it's just a, I can't believe I just said that sentence. I've written far too much Tag Gallagher in my time. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> the Fonda shit is my shit, but um, I get. I just mean like yeah. I mean I love Fendry Fonda. I just mean like Tom Hanks in general is more like Henry Fonda, right? In the roles he's been playing, this is his fifth decade of, um, you know, prestige beigeness. Yeah, exactly. Like I did really enjoy um, <laughs> Christina Newland's piece for the BBC about Tom Hanks in conjunction for this film. I don't know if you read that. Oh no, I unfortunately only sort of skirted a bit around the sort of Twitter discourse about it, but I didn't actually read it. I feel like there's very little to talk about with this film because it's just so unfashionable, you know, especially the fact that this is a Tom Hanks film. There's another Tom Hanks film that came out like a couple of months ago or whatever, I can't remember what it's called, but it's just like normal ass war film. Again, probably way better than Nomadland, but uh, I think it's called Greyhound. I've literally not heard of it. Well, of course, it's not an A24. You know, it's not marketed to you or me. It's marketed, you know. (laughs) I didn't see it in other asterisk, 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 asterisk European films (laughs) on (laughs) OK.RU. So I didn't didn't come across it. Let's talk about John Ford, man. You you mentioned Shine (laughs) Autumn earlier. And just in terms of like how it's sort of constructed as a revisionist, western Mm -hmm. i think it does even though it like has lots of like sort of i wouldn't say conservative like i guess like sort of like conventional tropes in it um the eraf sequence um you know one of the sort of like backwards Uh like (laughs) oppressed towns that they go to like it really made me obviously it made me think of the shy and autumn sequence where with, um with carl malden where they find like all the dead buffalo and it's like oh, yeah. uh, like, like all the buffalo skeletons that have been like stripped and it's like so dread um and then this like you really see like that as a process um and it's like I mean, when we were discussing First Cow, you were talking about how it's like the sort of origins of capitalism yep. in America. And I feel like that this was wet. And I and I spoke about how I associate beef in America with like industrial, you know, like just like really aggressive mm. sort of strategies. Um, Every time you have a can of Zuba and you look at the <laughs> cover and you shed a tear. You know? <laughs> <laughs> But in this film, yeah, it really actualizes it and shows it as a process of like sort of like their whole um, local industry is centered around like the the slaughter of buffalo and um, the sort of selling of the the skins and, you know, using the meat and stuff like that. Um, But there are so many other references. You were talking to me off mic earlier about um, Man of the West um, outside of Ford. Well, I was going into this film. I was prepared to be a little disappointed by it because, you know, another per- another big analogue for Tom Hanks or the role that he fills in, like, modern cinema is, like, people comparing to James Stewart all the time, right? And also, I guess, Gary Cooper has a similar function as well. But what Anthony Mann did to those people in the same way that Hitchcock did to James Stewart is making them, like, really reckon with their own psyche and, like, making them give these really outrageous, unexpected performances. And I was hoping for something like that from Tom Hanks, but of course it doesn't happen. Like no, he plays like a very trad, like patriarchal sort of. He is the judge priest, you know, yeah. but he's the newsreader before that sort of technology existed. I know, like all the 
experiments in mid-century psychology <laughs> had they failed but like this film is more a product of that or whatever where it's like it's not psychoanalyzing the hanks character like at all in a way that like man would do for james no because the whole film is predicated on his like paternal sort of imperatives yeah but like it doesn't really analyze that no but i I, i'm not interested in sort of psychoanalysis in film so i was down for that (laughs) (laughs) i just want to see tom hanks will rogers slash john ford in the searchers vibes going to the grave of his wife being like oh you know like speaking to the grave or whatever yeah i mean that that shit really did <laughs> it did touch me you know it really really did you never see tom hanks get on or off a horse in this film which is obviously a huge part of like how good an actor you were in a john ford film to the director <laughs> yeah it doesn't feel like they did the larping camp does it but they did when okay so i thought of man of the west in in the context of this amazing sequence in the middle where they've basically been run out of town by this like gang of pedophiles Oh yeah, it's like, it's like a three-person gang, and then <laughs> yeah, they have yeah. this like very elaborately staged shootout where like you know every reload and every like re-aim, every gesture is like a really important part. Like nothing is throwaway, um, and it's the first like you spend about an hour waiting for it to feel like a Paul Greengrass movie, and then it really, really does in this part just because the editor is just so well done. And then it ends up with Tom Hanks like standing directly under the only assailant, which reminded me a lot of the final shootout in man of the west a very unpopular pick of mine for the little film club but they couldn't handle it they couldn't handle it it did definitely feel like it was invoking that the bit that it felt most like a sort of trad like actually paul greengrass bit for me was nothing to do with um the sort of conflict between man and man but the sort mm. of dialectic between uh man and physics when the the car uh, breaks apart which i thought was a fantastically produced sequence and yeah. very intense it was really intense um, far yeah. more so than the bit in uh meets cutoff which portrays a similar thing or whatever right mm, just different energy though it's totally different on a technical level there were a couple of things that i really did appreciate about this film that felt like very 21st century to me in the same way that shaq odiards the sisters brothers opens in this really crazy way with a gunfight that's totally unlit and that whole sequence is the only light you can see is coming out of the guns or whatever as like little figures are like illuminated across mm. the frame that was an awesome film to see in the cinema and so with man this... i wish i'd seen it in the cinema i just yeah. that. i also completely forgot about it when we were talking about first cow and it's such a good sort of comparison sure but... both set in oregon as well this film the echoes of the guns across the landscape they said mm. the sound design in this film is incredible. I would have loved to have seen it in the cinema again because every time you hear a gun sh- fired, you hear it about six times, like reverberating mm. through the desert landscape. And I've never seen that in a Western before, not to that extent, not where it was so deliberate and like such a serious part of the filmmaking. So that's, you know, you can still innovate in the Western, even in boring, like, you know, stem ways like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, yeah. That's a great point. I didn't really think about it, but... Loved it. While we're talking technology and film production, there was another thing that really made this a non-John Ford film, or one of the few ways that it isn't, which is these fucking drone shots, man. 
Mm. There's a couple that are just, like Les Miserables or like all documentaries or rap videos that you see. <laughs> but there's one with like the cattle drive going into Dallas, mm. I think. It just looks incredible. Like, mm. And I, I guess it's real. I guess it's staged. Like, that's a shot you never see in Westerns, you know. It also settles into that sort of third person, Red Dead style right. sort of perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel kind of unequipped to, to talk about modern Westerns by not having played Red Dead 2 because it's clearly like <laughs> the the example of this or whatever. Mm. But I look forward to playing it. I love the Matt Sweeney soundtrack and the D'Angelo tune, you know. D'Angelo did a tune? Yeah, you should listen to that. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those drone shots, like, both the really sweeping ones and also, as I think we were saying off mic, like, the ones that are just sort of hovering. Mm. It has a cool effect. I guess it's pretty Netflixy. Yes. Another sort of technical thing I experienced when I was watching it was just the, the sort of light shifting in the, um, in the sort of nighttime scenes that I thought was sort of weird and distracting at times. Mm. I assume it was shot on digital. Um, I remember streaming like Game of Thrones episodes that were just like huge set piece episodes where it's like 55 minutes of like a fight at night time mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. you can't see half of it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. It, I guess it was a way of sort of negotiating that where they like changed the contrast in some shots to yeah. avoid that sort of like distortion, but it in turn seems sort of distracting. I, did you notice that? Yeah, it could have been a bandwidth thing, but no, I do I do get exactly what you're talking about. What I would say, though, is that like all of those like nighttime camping sequences have really nicely composed establishing shots of like the campfire and the two characters shot from like pretty far away. Nicely drawn, like very nicely composed shots. So I'm going to be a bit more forgiving if like it looks a bit incoherent, like after those shots in the yeah. dialogue. Oh, I'm not a bit. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm being critical. Just that it just was a strange aspect of it, and I wasn't sure whether it was yeah, as you said, like a bandwidth issue or like part of my curated streamy experience. Or or <laughs> there is the inescapable sense that you're watching a Netflix movie, especially in that bit where he discovers the goal in the forest. There's like a particular kind of digital green that is very recognisable as like mm. a Netflix hallmark to me. It might be total bullshit. It might just be some psychological thing, but that's what it felt like. I would also say, despite the fact that there are splendid moments in this, this film had one of the worst looking opening sequences I've ever seen, where like the first shot is just like Hank's getting out of bed and you see like his leg going across the room or whatever. That, <laughs> like sitting down to watch that, I was like, oh, this is going to suck. But like... <laughs> <laughs> settled in settled in very quickly but like i think what i said to you was p decent <laughs> well it's it's a thing right because this is a very normal film very straightforward film i think unless you've watched like 50 john ford movies you're probably not going to be that surprised by like the choices they make and it's probably just going to feel like a normal cowboy movie or whatever mm. but i thought it was great <laughs> oh, I'm, gl- I'm glad you enjoyed it because when I watched it first, I you have more of an affinity with the Western as a genre than I do. Sure. Although over last year, I feel like I filled in some of the gaps. Sure. It's obviously a very complex genre, though. And well, but you like it now. You actively like it, right? That's the that's the distinction. You're down. Yeah, I think there's a lot more going on than cowboys and Indians, which is how so yeah. many people imagine yeah. the Western. Um, yeah. it, the Western is a dialectical playground, mm-hmm. and um, 
uh, arena for sort of exploring complex historical issues, even if it, it can be sort of reductive for Mr. Mark or be a product of its potentially reactionary time. I thought this film was pretty decent. <laughs> I thought it was pretty decent. Talking about that dialectical thing, like there's one sequence, again, it's like pretty much bang in the middle of this film and it's like, it's pretty on the nose. But it's like the first conversation that the Hanks character has with Helena Zengel, like the child. Mm. And they're just like learning how to speak to each other in like very broad verbal context. And she's like drawing a circle with her hands, like the land and the sky and saying like the world is a circle or whatever. But then the Tom Hanks character talking about like manifest destiny and like the Mm. ideology of Westwood expansion is talking about history as being like a straight line and yeah, like, teleological. Yeah, but I thought that was a great scene, even though it's extremely bait, right? Mm. I haven't read much criticism of this film, but a lot of it was like, oh, the girl is meant. This seems wise beyond her years, but I mean, it's just that she's like given. She's just got a different a worldview, <laughs> framework to yeah. the sort of Western analog, i.e., Tom Hanks's character. Yeah. Yeah. And the or- to the it's, audience, you know. <laughs> it's a nice way to play it out. It is a bit like 4D chess, I think, having this like Aryan German girl who like only speaks a Native American language, like is there to mm. challenge like the ex-Confederate media club. We'll get to that now. But like, you know what I mean? Like it's very clever in how it sets that up as well as being like very straightforward. But I thought it was effective because like the acting... It's really good on both sides, I think. I don't hate Tom Hanks, like how Sloan hates Tom Hanks. I thought Bridge of Spies was another brilliant film. Again, about like being a two-hander where like Hanks obviously represents like straight American shit. And then in that film, you've got Mark Rylance playing like a Soviet maybe spy. Mm. Love Mark Rylance. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that it's a banging film. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, sure. it's a bit boring. <laughs> Yeah, this film. This film's a bit boring as well, but that's all right. <laughs> like, yeah, but I'm not enough of a like John Le Carre fan to like sure. have been like, oh, sure. this is referencing this. Like, whereas sure. in this one, I felt like there was a lot to dig into. I would say, however, that like enjoying this film is not predicated on like an appreciation of like western tropes and like what you know i think it's a pretty entertaining film in general it's like nicely paced and like has like solid aesthetics or whatever as we sort of alluded to so i would encourage people to to watch this you know subscribe to netflix and watch this film finishing the film though it did leave me with a bit of a mad interpretation or not to like telegraph it a very normal interpretation but Steph was like what are you talking about you listen to far too many podcasts but like the film is like in a very similar way to The Post by Steven Spielberg from a couple of years ago I haven't seen it nah I don't think I have seen it but like you know I don't remember anything about it you know Tom Hanks is the forebear of like Anderson Cooper or like all of these like media news figures gatekeepers gatekeepers right (laughs) Especially when he's, like, interpreting the news for, like, a big illiterate population, right? That's, like, a big thing about the film. But he is able to hold the real menaces to society to account. And it is a very 2020 film. You know, you've got the, like, the white pedophiles gang and you've got the, like, white terrorists. And they're the only threats in the film, which is something, again, I really admire about this film. It's not a revisionist Western, but it is, like, all the villains are white Americans, right? Yeah, You've got this, like, Donald Trump analogue. I don't know how to 
say it in a more sophisticated way. Just like a populist figure, a local tyrant. Yeah, yeah, who's corrupt as well. And you get to see him get shot. And he's yeah. like giving him fake news directives, like, no, you should read this, you yeah. should read this. Read and like, the ERAF journal that I write, yeah. edit, publish, you know. <laughs> it felt a bit on the nose. I bet Mark Kermode fucking loved it. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is, I couldn't get away from that to me. This is the like patrician media, like gatekeeper holding corruption to account and yeah. being the only hope for america in the you know against the scourge of fake news and like domestic terrorism or whatever when i invoked judge priest the yeah. whole point of judge priest is that like it's almost a joke that this like conciliatory figure plays like that dual role of like the sort of state sanctioned arbiter mm-hmm. but also the sort of moral authority i feel like sure. uh hanks's character in this film has that sort of like capital yeah with a C. As in, like, in the, like, Borgia sense or whatever. Sure. But, yeah, that's exactly his role. Like, there's no, like, pithy way of, you know, newsreader or, like, newsman doesn't have that sort of connotation. But, like, it imbues that with, like, a sort of moral sort of dynamic. Definitely. Which, like, makes him a sort of paragon or a sort of bastion of light in this uh, bereft landscape. Yeah. And that is, like, his quality. A hundred percent. Which, you know, you expressed it far more eloquently than I did. But I think that feeling that the film gives you, it made me laugh a little bit. I I mean, I don't expect every Netflix mainstream like Hollywood film to be like the most insightful radical shit I've ever seen. But like on the whole, I really enjoyed this film. But like Mm. that messaging element just made me like sigh and laugh a little bit or whatever. Just turning back to pictures of the old world very briefly, and like mm. we spoke about how like literacy has like plays such an important role or indicates like a large barrier in the sort of like scope of those uh, people's world, mm-hmm. and like that this film is about the exact same thing. It just so happened mm. that like there is a character who's literally a sort of synecdoche of the news, i.e., the truth, and a sort of privileged editorial position, yeah, which. You know, it's not about like he's not a school teacher. He's not like a. It's the mm. what's the firewall like? Teach a man to fish, and he can feed himself all his life, or like you can give him a fish for a day, and then he'll be hungry the next day. Like it's literally the same thing. Like it's not about rectifying the situation. It's about like arbitrating that situation or mediating that situation. However, there is that character who kills the like Donald Trump analog or whatever, who he like sends him off to join the wagon train like with a newspaper, right? And he's like, no, you can learn to read this too, and you can one day maybe you'll be telling your stories or whatever yeah as privileged a view of native americans as this took i don't think uh you know i i can't imagine that guy reaching his destination you know <laughs> he's he's sent off into the wilderness on his own after giving tom hanks his character his gun being like yeah. i ain't gonna need this anymore <laughs> i'm gonna learn to read mr hanks i'm gonna do you yeah. proud and then <laughs> uh i don't think so yeah i don't think so either but there is another element to it as well, um, not to get all too muddled up, but this film definitely takes place in the same extended universe as Red River by Howard Hawks, which I know you haven't seen yet. Uh, yeah, I've got to watch it. It's one of the best, but it's all about like crossing the Red River and like joining the cattle drive or whatever, mm. which is like what that film dramatizes. In that film, John Wayne's character really learns his lesson. You know, he's like, don't be a reactionary. Don't like punish the youth because they're not from the same lived experience as you. Mm. And this film, there's a lot more like, I hate to say something like liberal values because I just sound like a fascist, you know, but like 
they are like presupposed onto the film you know the characters don't need to like discuss them a whole lot much because i think most people watching this film will approach it with the same perspective right mm. however tom hanks does save us from one more or does save the Helen- helena zengor character from one more scary appositional force which is of course uh <laughs> the german <laughs> the <laughs> you have some really scary um homesteaders homestead like lutheran homesteaders at the end who like apparently this girl is related to and she gets left with them and then sorry spoiler alert skip skip forward like 30 seconds and then he comes back to find her and she's like tied to a post and like you know it's just like straight discipline Mm. shit and they're like we tried but our methods didn't work (laughs) (laughs) but you know that is again it has something to say about where america is at in a in similar way to like first reformed right by paul schrader from a couple mm. of years ago where mm. it's like that protestant ethic the slide from that into like inhumanity is very direct mm. yeah i mean verbarian logic is all about that sort of like rationality of yeah. like the sort of mechanisms of um social logic like everything that governs life and like yeah obviously that relates to like that sort of like fordian um, the uh, the bad Ford, the bad Fordian logic, you know that uh, right, the the other Ford, that, yeah, <laughs> that leads to uh, you know that sort of inhumane rationalism. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where like Sturm and Drang or whatever, you feel mm. like there's like two like cellos, like dissonant cellos, like <laughs> coming in on the soundtrack when they start talking or whatever. It's that kind of <laughs> shit. But... Oh my god. <laughs> That was the most old school thing about the film was having the like evil Germans at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Film Graze. Um, a bit less mammoth in scope and subject matter compared to like previous episodes and forthcoming episodes, but I've really enjoyed doing this one. Mm. We did fuck up by not talking about The World by Zsa Janka from 2004. <laughs> oh my God. But it just means we got to do an episode on him in the near future. Yeah, I'd also love at some point to actually look at some of these Paul Greengrass TV films, potentially when we look at Irish cinema or Ireland on screen as well. We can revisit some of them as well. Um, because that bloody Sunday film, I thought, was a sensational sort of Z movie. Shout out Greengrass. He's a good filmmaker. He's not worth thinking he's naff. Mm. He made the naffest film ever and it was still pretty good. <laughs> when you said to me, oh, you're going to watch this new Paul Greengrass film? I was like, eh, I don't know, mate. Yeah, uh, yeah of course, man. But I, I, this this is, new Tom Hanks film. This has changed my perspective of it. Great. Of his work, for sure. Thanks for listening. We're, we've got plenty coming up soon. Sure do. Uh, I think 1921 is going to be next. Yeah. And we'll do the Louis one soon as well as Irish language cinema and Zoltan Fabry. Oh. So don't unsubscribe, as I said before. <laughs> yeah. Depop coming soon. New logo coming soon. Patreon coming <laughs> <like> soon. <laughs> uh, and Little Film Club. We've almost been doing that for a year. That's mad. Without fail, week in, week out. Sam, you're picking tonight. What did you go for? I picked... Half School Wexler's 1969 Medium Call, a film I've wanted to watch for ages. I think it's going to be pretty dope, meant to be formally pretty interesting, and about the 1968 Democrat Convention, I guess, pretty important moment in American history. 
The first time I'm, I came across Medium Cool, right, was in Peter Biskin's very famous Easy Riders Raging Bulls about the new Hollywood, mm. where it kind of jumps off with Bonnie and Clyde, which was supposed to be directed by Goddard, but then he turned it down. Um, Is that so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how that influenced, like, you know, George Lucas, Coppola, Scorsese, Paul Schrader, you know, all of this stuff where Medium Cool is like also targets by Peter Bogdanovich, but maybe we'll watch that for a future one. That's a really mad film. But that film, insanely prescient for having, you know, European art techniques inform making a film about American politics in a way. It's very similar to Nashville. Or it's not very similar. It's like radically different in style and in content. Form and has content. a similar feeling. <laughs> Marriage story. <laughs> Medium Cool just mad influential film i know you considered picking uh putney swipe which came out at the same time and also just like radical american independent entertainment yeah indeed the exact same yeah i was gonna go for the double bill but i thought it was a bit outrageous oh it would have been insane <laughs> <laughs> i have programmed the short film um usman sembeni's borom sarat um the wagoner which looks like a sort of seminal post-colonial autorial effort yeah, very much so. Looking forward to watching. I can't that. wait to watch that. Took me a while to find a English subtitle version, and then I found one on YouTube. I don't even know how I found it. <laughs> what a, what a website! <laughs> yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, but today, of the time of recording, our fave Juliet Jakes's show, Sweet Two One Two episode this month was about Sembene. So I can't wait to listen to that straight after watching the Wagoner. Yeah, me too. Shout out Sweet Two One Two, brilliant podcast. Shout out all the pods worldwide. <laughs> Little Film Club is on Wednesdays at 8.30. Ask us for the Discord link if you want to join. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for Film Craze. Yeah. Please do get involved with the Film Club if you're listening. It's open. It's really fun. The club is open, as Bob Pollard said. Oi, music to my ears. And we're going to start charging after eating. No, I'm joking. <laughs> after eating. Uh, yeah. I'm going to charge a 50 pence. This content per... ain't free. I mean, it literally <laughs> is. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Cheers, Sam. Yeah, I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Lots of love. Now, well, the old world may be dead. Our parents can't understand. But I still love my parents. And I still love the old world. I want to keep my place in the old world Keep my place in the arcane Now I say bye-bye old world 